1: identifying with and strengthening this conditioned fear of unpleasant sensation, is it possible to soften the mind, to open the mind? Remember, this path of Dharma practice is a path of opening to what is true. If painful feeling is what is true in the moment, can we open to it? Can we feel it? practice of Dharma is a path of opening. It's opening to our senses, opening to our perceptions, opening to our emotions, to our thoughts, opening to the characteristics of experience. to the impermanence and unsatisfactoriness and selflessness, and opening in very, or increasingly, deep and subtle ways to each of these aspects of what is true. It's also opening to places of silence, and there are many levels of silence of mind, Munindraji, one of my first teachers, once gave a three-hour talk on the 21 kinds of silence. (laughs) There's a vastness of mind and of experience to open to. What's important to understand in our practice is that The way of practice is not a reaching out for something. It's not a trying to get or a trying to hold on. It is rather an opening to, an opening to our own Buddha nature, our own essential nature. Because Dharma means truth, and the truth is here all the time. So it's not something that we don't have, that somehow we have to get. Rather, the Dharma is what is here in every moment, and it's something we have to realize, something we have to open to. What keeps us closed to this realization, what keeps us closed to this opening process, are deeply conditioned fears. Fear is a very strong conditioning in the mind, very strong conditioning in the body, certain patterns, physical sensations, conditioned by fear. And this fear is a limitation. It's a pulling back. It's an unwillingness to open to what is true, to open to the Dharma. We're often afraid of pain, physical pain. We're afraid of psychological pain. We're afraid of insecurity, of uncertainty. We may be afraid of death. What happens as we proceed along this journey of practice is that we come to our edges, we come up to our boundaries of what is acceptable. What is acceptable in terms of physical sensation, what is acceptable in terms of mind states or feelings or emotions. And those are our boundaries at which Fears in the mind begin to reveal themselves. Can we go beyond these boundaries? Can we go beyond the edges? Is there a way of working with fear and understanding it so that it is no longer a limitation for us? Perhaps the most essential aspect of practice to understand is that the Dharma is the totality of our experience. Which means that everything is workable. There is no situation which arises in the body or in the mind which is outside of our practice. So we learn how to open. We learn to come to our boundaries, come to our edges, our limitations. We see the fear that may be operating there. And we learn to work with the fear. We include the fear in our practice. When we look at fear, when we look at this mind state directly, we begin to see that it is one of the manifestations of aversion. Aversion in the mind has two forms. It has an, you could call it an adva- an advancing or aggressive form, which manifests as anger. When aversion is aggressive, we get angry. When aversion is in retreat, kind of retreating form, that's fear. Both fear and anger. Are rooted in aversion. And this aversion, whether it takes the form of anger, which is advancing or aggressive, or takes the form of fear, which is withdrawing and contracting, it conditions further unwholesome states of mind. For example, When there's fear of losing what we have, whether it's pleasant sensations in the body or pleasant mind states or people or situations or possessions, when there's fear of losing what we have, that fear conditions attachment. Because we're now working with the fear itself, because we're identified and caught up with it, It conditions attachment in the mind, trying to hold on to what we have. Fear also conditions resistance in the mind. That is fear of experiencing what we don't want. We don't want pain, we don't want insecurity, we don't want uncertainty, we don't want death. And this fear of experiencing what we don't want conditions all the kinds of resistance that arises. So fear of losing what we have strengthens attachment. Fear of getting what we don't want strengthens resistance. What are we afraid of? What are the fears about? How can we work with these things? One of the most obvious things that we're afraid of is physical pain. And as you may have noticed in the time that you're here, It's fairly inevitable, given the fact of a body, given the fact that we take birth and have this physical form, at one time or another, it's going to hurt, there's going to be pain. But our minds have been very conditioned to be afraid of pain. We are unwilling to be with it, we're unwilling To be uncomfortable. How many times in this last month has the feeling arisen in the mind that when pain is there, it's a bad sitting and something is wrong. And that when it's all nice and peaceful and tingly and light and soft, that it's a good sitting we have this bias, we're very prejudiced. Somehow, to begin to look at pain in a different way, to begin to see that painful feelings and pleasant feelings are part of what constitutes us as a human being. And instead of simply identifying with and strengthening this conditioned fear of unpleasant sensation, is it possible to soften the mind, to open the mind? Remember, this path of Dharma practice is a path of opening to what is true. If painful feeling is what is true in the moment, can we open to it? Can we feel it? Pain is a wonderful object Because if you are interested in playing at the edge, if you're interested in finding out what the boundaries are of what the mind is willing to be with, pain will take you there. It's an express train to the edge. (laughs) So it's wonderful. It's a wonderful place to begin to explore, to explore the nature of pain itself, to explore the nature of fear. One of the things that we can discover as we take this train to the edge, when fear arises in the mind because of pain, it very often is not even associated or conditioned by the sensation itself as intense as a particular moment's sensation may be more often it's conditioned by a sequence of thoughts about the sensation and about the sensation enduring so even if we're quite capable of being an opening with the burning or the pressure or the tightening or the stabbing or the searing or the choking or the whatever (laughs) I'm sure you're quite familiar with the spectrum. Even if we're quite able to be with it in the moment, our mind gets a little panicky. You know, well, what if it stays the whole hour? And so really what we're afraid of is a concept. We're adding this thought to the experience and then getting afraid of it. I'd like to read something from um, one of the books uh, by D.T. Suzuki. It's from one of the Zen texts. It says, All is mind-made. It is like someone painting a tiger. They paint it, look at it, and are frightened. (laughs) There is, however, nothing at all in the painted figure itself which is fearsome. All is the brushwork of your own imagination. How often do we paint tigers and then become afraid of them? Afraid of what we paint, of of what we create through our thoughts, through our concepts. So using pain in the practice as a great teacher... It has the ability to bring the mind very deep. We can actually penetrate into the nature of phenomena. We can begin to see the three characteristics very clearly. As we open to the pain, rather than contract, rather than pull back out of fear, begin to see that pain is not one solid thing. It's not a solid mass. It's constantly changing. There's a certain vibratory feel to it, even if it is all intensely unpleasant. But we break up the solidity of it. People get enlightened watching pain because it's such a good object. The mind's not wandering very much. What's necessary is to stay soft, to stay very soft and very open. It's not a question of enduring. Unless there's a willingness in the mind and an interest in the mind to go into it and explore, it's not going to work very well. So at times when you feel that interest and feel that willingness, go to the edge, look at the fear that comes up. See what the fear is about. Is it about the sensation? Or is it about a thought? Now the thought of the future, the thought of the next hour or the next day or the next month, is a huge weight. It's a huge burden which we put on ourselves because we don't see that it is just a thought. So coming back to the moment and opening. Fear of pain, physical, physical pain. There's also fear of psychological pain. Very often we have a fear of being insecure. We don't like that feeling of insecurity or uncertainty. We're afraid of not being liked by other people, and afraid of not being loved, or accepted, or respected. And this fear leads to an inner psychological insecurity, which then has a very powerful conditioning role. If we're afraid of the feeling of insecurity, Afraid to feel vulnerable in that way. One thing that happens is we then look to other people to validate ourselves as human beings. So we need the validation of others to feel okay. Because we're unwilling to accept, we're unwilling to open to this feeling of insecurity. It leads to the creation of self-images. What is it that is so strong in our mind that continually creates these images of who we are? And then we have to protect these images. It solidifies everything. It makes it concrete. And why do we do that? We do it because we're afraid. We're afraid to open to be simply who we are. With all the wholesome parts and all the unwholesome parts. And certainly, if people could see us as we are, nobody would hang out with us. We can barely hang out with ourselves. So, who else would want to? That's the thought pattern, because we're afraid of that. We're afraid of being that open. We're afraid of being that vulnerable. So we create these self-images as if people can't see anyway. Mm-hmm. This fear of insecurity, fear of vulnerability, also leads us and conditions this judgment of others. You may have noted that the judging mind is not unfamiliar. We judge everything. We judge the way people eat, the way people walk, the way people dress, the way people sit, the way people talk, every, anything. One time I was doing a self-retreat here, and I was in the dining room. And I was trying to eat mindfully, but my eyes just seemed to wander up to watch everybody coming in, you know, on the lunch line. And the mind had a comment for everyone. (laughs) Absolutely everyone. (laughs) They're going too fast, they're going too slow, they took too much, they took too little. (laughs) Why do they look so schlumpy? Why? (laughs) This is endless judging. Why is that? What's, What's feeding that pattern? Again, it's a way of strengthening a certain sense of security of self. When we're busy judging others, when the mind is doing that, somehow it gives us a sense of a position. And we're solidifying a position, a perspective, and so we feel secure in that. To the degree that we can open to our own insecurity, So that we don't have the need to be in position. We don't have the need to solidify a sense of self. The judging mind becomes much less. This fear of insecurity, fear of uncertainty, fear of being open, also has tremendous implications, difficult implications, for our interpersonal relationships. Because it doesn't allow us to be open, to be honest. We're protecting something, we're defending something, in order not to feel that vulnerability. It's as if we are wearing these masks, and we're afraid to take them off. Just as a little exercise sometime, you might imagine that you're sitting with somebody who has the power to look into your mind, to look into your heart, so they can see everything. And then to get a sense of what we would want to hide, what would we want to protect, what would we want them not to be able to see. That's the place of holding, that's the place of fear. The question is then, in our practice, is it possible to open? Is it possible to open to feeling insecure, that that feeling is okay? That it's okay to feel vulnerable, and it's okay to feel exposed, and it's okay to feel open. Letting it all be there. All the dark spaces, and all the bright spaces. It's a woman by the name of Vimala Takhar, who's a woman from India, who was a student and friend and associate for a long time of Krishnamurti. She's a wonderful, wonderful woman and amazingly incisive and penetrating mind. And in the time before she went out to begin sharing and teaching by herself, while she was still with Krishnamurti, she was very hesitant to go out and share her own insights and wisdom. And at one point Krishnamurti told her that the reason you don't want to go out at this time is that you're afraid to make mistakes. Don't be afraid to make mistakes. And that's very liberating. When we realize and accept the fact that we are indeed fallible I don't know why it should be such a surprise to us, <laughs> but somehow it's something that we can't quite integrate in our lives and actions. When we realize that though, and realize that we're going to make a lot of mistakes in everything, you know, in our practice, in our relationships, in our work, in everything, and that it's okay. We don't have to be afraid to make mistakes. And if we can somehow come to that acceptance of our fallibility, it makes it much simpler and much easier than to open. There's a tremendous power of connectedness, tremendously deep connectedness, which can come when we are in our most vulnerable space. I'd like to share a story with you that goes back quite a few years in my practice. But it very much relates to this point. I'd been doing a session, a Zen session with Suzaki Roshi. And he has the ability to be this amazingly Fierce Zen master, although he has many different sides, he was being quite fierce with me. And in that in that practice, you do koans. He gives you a koan, and you go in, and four times a day, you give him your response to the koan. And so I'm going to this session, and I'm doing my koans, and I go into those. Sanzen, that's what it's called, the interviews. And he asks me the question, and I give him my answer. Very stupid. (laughs) (laughs) Go in next time. You know, it's all very formal, this kind of bowing. It's all very formal, very structured. He rings his bell, you leave. Next time I go in, too much ego. (laughs) This went on and on, day after day, you know didn't understand anything too stupid and i was just feeling worse and worse and worse and i was just everything was getting tight and tense it was like a very bad trip (laughs) i was getting i was feeling so much uh, anxiety (laughs) about going in for these interviews finally about halfway through this through the session I just gave up, you know, I I just didn't care anymore. And I went in with that attitude, you know, it just doesn't matter. So he took a little pity on me and gave me an easier koan. (laughs) And he kind of took me a step backwards. And the koan he gave me at this time was how do you manifest Buddha nature while chanting a sutra. Okay, it seemed even to me at that time, fairly straightforward. However, what perhaps he didn't know, and perhaps he did, was that that particular koan touched this deep button in my mind about singing and chanting, which went back to a third grade music teacher who told me just to mouth the words. (laughs) It actually was appropriate advice. (laughs) And advice which had been reinforced over the years many times. (laughs) And so over the years, there was just this tremendous inhibition and fear which had been built up about you know, singing or chanting in public. (laughs) So here I am in this very intense situation, you know, with this Zen master who's there like a rock and who's been really fierce. And and I'm supposed to go in and kind of demonstrate my Buddha nature by chanting a little sutra. (laughs) So I spend the next, you know, the next sitting periods rehearsing in my mind a billion times you know, the, the fragment of a chant that I was going to do. I go in, the bell rings for the interviews, go up. I'm in a totally awful state. <laughs> I'm, I'm just feeling so mm, raw and exposed and fearful and, and open in not a very pleasant way. Sort of like an open wound. I go in, I do my bow, he asks me the koan, I start chanting, I got the whole thing mixed up, you know, the, <laughs> did it backwards, and I'm sitting there doing this and feeling just so totally exposed, and he looked at me, and very softly he said,
0: very good,
1: and it was such an incredible moment, because Because I was so open and so exposed, it's as if the words literally touched my heart. Because there was nothing at that point protecting it or defending it. And it was such a beautiful lesson in what is possible, in the kind of connectedness that's possible when, either willingly or unwillingly, we find ourselves in that very open, vulnerable space. So it's a powerful space to be in, and we can actually come to appreciate it, rather than to be afraid of it. This fear of physical pain, this fear of emotional, psychological pain, fear of this insecurity, fear of being being vulnerable, There's also a very strong fear in the mind of death. Many people are afraid of dying. Where does that come from? Why is it so deep and so pervasive? As long as we hold on to this mind and body as being self, as being I, that attachment, that identification will inevitably condition of fear of death. The fear of death is in some way a resistance to or a not acknowledging of impermanence. Of the fact that actually, not metaphorically but literally we are being born and dying every moment. Consciousness is arising and passing instantaneously. But until we understand that, until we experience that in ourselves, we have the idea of some enduring entity which, you know, when we get old and sick and die, conventionally speaking, it's finished. So then there's going to be a tremendous fear of that. But as we understand this process right now as we're living, and we see that there is no enduring entity, we let go to some extent of this attachment, this grasping at the mind and body as being self, then we find that the fear of death begins to diminish because we are opening to and surrendering to that death every moment. What happens when we don't do that, when we don't open in that way, is we try to hold on to our experience as we know it. We're holding on or attached to the known. We try to recreate past experiences. I had a wonderful experience yesterday. There was a wholeness, and a completeness, and a fullness, and light, and it was wonderful. And how can I get that back? How can I recreate it? And our minds are continually doing this. Instead of realizing that in each moment, we are opening to the unknown. Not trying to pull into the present some past experience but rather being willing to surrender to the unknown. Otherwise, what we are doing is comparable to dragging a corpse around with us. And that's what we do in our lives. We drag all these corpses of past experience, dead experience. Things that have happened no matter how wonderful or how terrible, because we carry corpses of both ilks and we do that out of a fear of surrendering to the unknown of surrendering to the death in each moment and as we understand this process more clearly through observation, through mindfulness, as we see that it's all arising and passing and that each moment is new, we begin to let go of dragging these corpses. And we become enlightened in a very literal sense. Things begin to lighten up because we're not carrying so much baggage. I'd like to read something from Krishnamurti who addresses this so often in his teachings, said, most of us are frightened of dying because we don't know what it means to live. We don't know how to live, and therefore we don't know how to die. As long as we are frightened of life, we shall be frightened of death. The person who is not frightened of life the person who is not frightened of life is not frightened of being completely insecure. For they understand that inwardly and psychologically there is no security. When there is no security, there is an endless movement. And then life and death are the same. The person who lives without conflict, who lives with beauty and with love, is not frightened of death. If you die to everything you know, including your family, your memory, everything you have felt, then death is a purification, a rejuvenating process. To find out actually what takes place when you die, you must die. You must die, not physically, but psychologically. Inwardly, die to the things you have cherished and to the things you are bitter about. If you have died to one of your pleasures, the smallest or the greatest, naturally and without any enforcement or argument, then you will know what it means to die. To die is to have a mind that is completely empty of itself, empty of its daily longings, pleasures, and agonies. When there is death, there is something totally new. Freedom from the known is death. And then you are living. That is exactly our practice. Dying in each moment, being reborn in each moment, not holding on, not dragging from the past. This fear of pain, this fear of psychological insecurity, this fear of death. These are the fears, these are the deeply conditioned fears that keep us from this process of surrender, process of opening. How can we work directly with the fear, with the mind state of fear? Because it's strong in the mind times. The first attitude that I think is helpful with it is to have a respect for it, because it is not a superficial quality, it's not a superficial conditioning of mind. The fears go very, very deep. And so it's not enough to have simply an intellectual understanding, but it's really a willingness To have a respect for the fear and a willingness to work with it, to open to it. It's to recognize them when they arise. With an attitude of acceptance. That it's okay to feel fear. We don't have to be afraid of fear. If we're afraid of fear, we just further intensify it, further lock it in. Can we take or can we encourage a loving acceptance when the mind is afraid? An image which perhaps you might find useful. So Often when the fear is very strong and very intense, it's hard to have a proper attitude towards it. We either condemn it or judge it or run away from it. But imagine at the time when the fear is intense, imagine that you're relating to a very frightened child. There's a child that's very frightened by something. What would you do? How would you relate to that child? A few things you probably wouldn't do. You probably wouldn't go over to the child and feed the fear. You should be afraid. It's a good thing you're afraid. and Stay afraid. You probably wouldn't do that. On the other hand, you probably also wouldn't hit the kid over the head for being afraid. You know, you stupid kid, why are you afraid? Wouldn't do that either, most likely. Rather, if there were a frightened child, most likely we would go over. And simply be there for him or her. In a supporting way, in a loving way, in a caring way. Allowing the fear to be there without feeding it and without judging it, without condemning it. It's okay. It's okay to feel that. For some reason we find it easier to do it with somebody outside of ourselves than when the fear is in our own minds. But it's the same attitude that's necessary. And so sometimes by externalizing the image, it can remind us of what a skillful attitude might be. We decondition the intensity of the fear. We decondition that particular factor through a loving acceptance. Because if we identify with it, we feed it. If we condemn it, we feed it. But if we can simply be there and accept it and be aware, it begins to dissipate. The first, the first thing we do is accept it, lovingly. The second thing we do with fear is we can begin to take the measure of the situation. because different actions might be appropriate depending on what the situation is. Sometimes fear arises, and the appropriate action to take is a retreat, is actually to move away from the situation. Sometimes fear arises, and the appropriate action is to move ahead, to move right into it. If we're not afraid of the fear, if we've come to a place where we're comfortable or okay with that feeling, then it's possible to bring some discriminating wisdom to the situation. So instead of responding mechanically, or reacting automatically, we can see clearly, do we move ahead, do we pull back, do we sidestep? Many many actions are possible. Very often, when fear arises in our meditation practice, it arises at a place where we've reached a boundary, we've reached an edge. And in many situations, if we're willing to be with the fear, it's possible to go through it, possible to stay right there. That that can be a place of great heroic effort, great courageous effort, with pain. With sleep, you know. With sometimes people people undertake the eight precepts, which means not eating after after the new meal. A tremendous fear about that in the mind. Right? I'll starve. See, is what do we do with that? You know, do we pull back from it? Do we go ahead with it? Do we experiment? One of the most helpful things. That you could remember from this talk is that when there is fear in the mind, that means we are at a place of our boundary or our limitation of what we are willing to be with. And that place is the most interesting place to practice. It's not a problem. And it's not something to be avoided, because that's exactly the place where the most opening can happen. And so in times of difficulty, in times when there's fear in the mind, use it because it is a very precious gift. It's one of the gifts that the practice gives to us. There's two other attitudes of mind which help very much in working with fear. And that is metta, or loving kindness, and trust. Because when the mind is filled with metta, it creates a certain energy field in which fear doesn't operate. And The Buddha recommended the cultivation of metta in working with fear. But one has to be mindful and careful that the meta is genuine. I had an experience a couple of years ago visiting friends in Western Mass who live in the country. I was walking down this dirt road past a neighbor's farm. And there was this little dog who was very agitated more than agitated <laughs> aggressive and this dog was you know really barking away very loudly very aggressively it looked like he was going to attack any minute so i thought fine i'll do some meta. You know, so i'm standing there you know be happy be happy be happy be peaceful it came over and bit me <laughs> There was sort of instant feedback that be happy and stay over there is not really metta. You know, that's, you could call it manipulative metta. That's not the metta the Buddha was talking about. When there is genuinely a feeling of love, it very much helps to Mm -hmm. reduce the quality of fear in the mind and the quality of trust. Trusting in ourselves, trusting in the practice, trusting in the Dharma, the law of things. There's one brief haiku poem which expresses this trust in the way of things which is really what dharma means. Dharma means law. It means how things are. There's a haiku poem that said, Simply trust. Don't the leaves flutter down just like that. Simply trust. Don't the leaves flutter down just like that.